This podcast with author Sally Quinn is brought to you by leadership expert Peter Economy, the author of a new book entitled Wait, I'm the Boss. Please listen to podcast number 791 where Peter and Greg speak about this essential guide for new managers. In this interview, they discuss topics such as setting goals that are smart and clear, as well as how managers can create a learning organization. These important topics and more are imperative to becoming a successful manager in today's fast-changing business environment. If you want to learn more about Peter Economy and his book, Wait, I'm the Boss, please visit his website at www.petereconomy.com. That's P-E-T-E-R-E-C-O-N-O-M-Y.com. Thanks for listening. Now enjoy this interview with Sally Quinn about her new book, Finding Magic. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Sally, as I do every time I come on these podcasts, it always amazes me now. We're 14 years into this. Um, we're at 800 interviews. And listeners just keep coming and coming and coming and listening to these podcasts with great authors like yourself. Um, Sally Quinn is joining us. You're down in Maryland on your farm, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. So Sally Quinn has a new book out called Finding Magic. It's a love story. Um, Many of you out there probably know who Sally Quinn is, but Sally, I always like to introduce my guests with a little bit of something so that people have an idea of who we're speaking with. Sally is a longtime Washington Post journalist, columnist, television commentator, Washington Insider, one of the Capitol's legendary social hostess, and the founder of a religious website on faith from the Washington Post. Uh, she writes for various publications and is the author of The Party, A Guide to Adventures Entertaining, Regrets Only, comma, comma, Happy Ending, and We're Going to Make You a Star, a memoir based on her experiences as the first female network anchor in the United States. She lives in Washington, D.C., but due to the pandemic, is down on her farm in Maryland, enjoying the time there. So, Sally, a pleasure having you on with us. And my good friend, uh, Doug Holliday, who was on the show, uh, uh, referred me uh, to Sally and to a few other authors. And I was so blessed to actually have an opportunity to receive her book. And I want everybody to go out and buy a copy of this book if you're listening to this interview, because it's not only a fascinating story, but it's a story for all of you interested in spirituality. Um, which our genre, one of our big genres, is spirituality. So uh, today we're going to be speaking with Sally about kind of her spiritual journey and her life journey. Now, Sally, you start the book off, um, you know, with this belief that you were brought up in this occult and it started in your early mem- uh, memories when you grew up in Savannah, Georgia. I think it's a great place for us to kind of start this interview Tell the listeners a little bit about your upbringing and how this affected kind of your spiritual philosophy and beliefs that maybe you've had throughout your life, maybe not today, because I know you've transitioned quite a bit 
in what you believe then and what you believe now. And it's because of this interesting path you've taken. So tell us a little bit about that story. Well, and not only that, but uh, I finished, the book came out two years ago, and what I believed then is different from what I believe now. So I, you know, I think that, that belief and faith and spirituality are all something that's sort of organic and is constantly changing and growing. Um, I, my mother was from Savannah, Georgia, and um, her family was from a tiny town outside of Savannah called Statesboro. And Statesboro, Georgia um, was uh, founded uh, by a lot of Scots who came down from North Carolina with the turpentine trade. So my family, the MacDougall family, my mother's family, were all Scottish and all had this kind of, you know, Scottish sensibility, standing stones and spirits. And um, it was it was all sort of a lot of mysticism and a lot of and a lot of occult in the family. And so tarot tarot cards too, tarot reading. Oh, everything. I mean, psychic phenomena, tarot cards, um, voodoo, because a lot of the the uh, the staff who wait waited on my family were blacks who had who the, the interesting thing was that it was everybody in Statesboro had a different religion from the one that they practiced correct I, my <clears throat> my family were they were um, um, southern um, Presbyterians Scottish Presbyterians uh, but they practiced this occult at home. And so were the black wait staff who went to this, their own Baptist churches, but also practiced voodoo um, at home. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> I sort of grew up with both of these. My, my aunt Ruth um, played the piano or the organ in the, in the Presbyterian church. And so I grew up with this kind of um, understanding that there was this one sort of accepted religion that we all did publicly. And then there was the real stuff. (laughs) Well, the stuff you went to Sunday school and then the stuff you did at home, you know, I think uh, most occult uh, spiritual groups at that time had to go underground. Uh, Paul Foster case, many of the people that, you know, you might recognize, um, it was it was more of an underground thing because if you were very outward about what you were doing, uh, you literally were going to be lynched. I mean, if you know what I mean. I, I don't mean that literally, but it was it was almost that way. So you practiced in the house. You practiced in the basement. Uh, well, and then, yeah, and and the Scots. You know, the thing was that the Scots all understood this. I don't know whether anybody's watched Outlander, but the whole yeah. idea of Outlander and the stones where they travel back in time and forward in time. I mean, that's all very Scottish. And so they all believed that, that kind of thing. Yeah. So in the, in the Scottish community, it wasn't unusual. Um, well, you said there was good voodoo and bad voodoo. You mentioned right. that in well, the book. You know, and, the, and I just thought maybe for our listeners, they might want to explain the differences in the practices that, that you had that kind of informed your spirituality and kind of where you went. Because obviously you talk about hexes in the book. Um, you, I've seen you on other interviews where some people – kind of lambasted you a little bit about, you know, some of the hexes that you're telling the truth. (laughs) Yeah, that your mother did. I was reading about the part in the book where 
you know, your mother was attacked in the bathtub by this, this guy, you know, really, really interesting stories, very rich stories throughout the book. But this part about good voodoo and bad voodoo, I think most people think that all voodoo is probably bad voodoo. No, I mean, it's, it's just a separate way of worshiping. And, um, but, but there are bad, but, you know, there's good religion and bad religion, too. I mean, there was right. a Spanish Inquisition where they murdered anybody who wouldn't profess to the Catholic Church. Right. So, you know, I, I don't think that good or bad voodoo is any different from any other good or bad parts of religion. But in good voodoo, you, 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 can, you can wish things or cast spells on people for good reasons. You know, it's like praying, really. Um, except that they have, you know, r- rituals and dancing and that kind of thing. But you can, you know, you can put a hex on somebody or, or a spell on somebody hoping that they will get better if they're sick or if you want somebody to fall in love with you or whatever yeah. else it might be. But I think most people think, yeah. Sally, of it like they, The Exorcist, the movie, where, yeah. you know, there's little dolls and we're putting, right. yeah. we're sticking I mean, things inside of it. If you go to New Orleans, you, you know, every. There are voodoo shops on every corner, and there are always these little stick figures, and you stick pens in them, and right. it's, it's the person you want to hurt or make, you know, right, make uncomfortable or whatever. And um, and also, there are varying levels. I mean, you might just want to get back at somebody who said something mean to you, or you might want to kill somebody. Um, and there are voodoo rituals, and we see them in movies all the time, where people yeah. are putting hexes on people because they want bad things to happen to them. And um, and I used to watch these rituals in the kitchen of our house in, in Statesboro. And, you know, and not only that, there were, you know, there were all kinds of things. There were ghosts in the house and people had psychic phenomena. And when someone, one of the McDougals died, um, the chains would rattle up and down the floors of the second floor hallway. And then you'd go up the next morning, you'd see scratches on the floor where the chains were, you know, I mean, it was all that kind of thing. And, and, you know, my aunt Ruth, her mother died and, and, um, and she was buried with her shawl. And one morning Ruth got up and went into, she felt her mother's presence went into the parlor and found her mother's shawl. She talked with her mother and her mother's shawl was there. You know, it was that kind of stories that I grew up with and believed and the, the, the hexes were something that you did if you wanted to punish somebody or hurt somebody. And I had never um, put a hex on anyone because I was always told, and, and my brother was sort of a student of this too. He ended up getting his PhD in religion at the university of Chicago and studied with Martin Marty and, and um, you know, as it was, as a great intellectual. Uh, but he studied a lot of uh, religious practices and he always said, don't ever put a hex on anybody or wish anybody ill because it will come back at you threefold. Well, you know, it's interesting because the, the Aborigines, the indigenous people of this country, uh, spiritual practices, most of them included, well, maybe it wasn't called voodoo, but they had their own practices. Right. And if you look back in time, you're talking about the Scottish people, there, there was, there was. I'm not going to say no difference, but the way people practiced their faith or belief or whatever it was was uh, 
different than when the Christians came along and tried to convert everybody. Let's face it. Um, And it's because of the times that we lived in, right? And I think that the Christians did that. This is a personal commentary for control. Um, I think uh, Catholicism was obviously the same thing. So in other words, you had this group of rebels, (laughs) right, Uh, who weren't going to be controlled. This was the kind of group that said, hey, we're going to stand on our own. Right. Uh, and that's the kind of family you were. Yeah. And, and I mean, also, you know, you had the witch trials in Salem and, and right. a lot of it is superstition. And they believe these these girls talking about these women who were witches and they would hang them or burn them at the stake. And that happened in, in Europe as well. Um, right. Uh, you know, and so they, people have always been sort of afraid of magic um, and always assumed that magic was black magic. And of course, I think that. Most magic is good magic. I would agree with you. You know, I uh, have my own philosophy, you know, having come from Judaism, a father who was Catholic and a mother who was Jewish. uh, When you're brought up in a family like that, you kind of have to find your own path. Um, So now I I tell people, you know, what is your chosen path? It's probably closer to Buddhism, uh, but I do follow uh, Self-Realization Fellowship and Paramahansa Yogananda because I do a lot of meditation. One of the things you wrote about it very deep was this wonderful relationship with your parents. Your mother survived polio. That was a really interesting story. The doctor said that she wasn't going to, and your father um, was your best friend. It's very apparent uh, during this whole story that you're telling that he was your best friend. And you tell a great story in the book about your obsession with Alice in Wonderland and faking a sickness one day to not go to Sunday school. Um, and I, I'm going to let you tell the rest of the story um, because you said in the book, this was one of the most important days in your life. Um, why was that so important, and why was your telling a lie to your dad, who your dad, by the way, didn't seem like the kind of guy who was very into anyone lying to him? So, <laughs> well, he was a three-star general, you know. Yes. He was, uh, you know, yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, but you were his baby. <laughs> yeah, he went to West Point, and it was duty, honor, country, and. Um, never tell a lie and all that kind of thing. Um, Alice in Wonderland was the new Disney movie that was coming out. And I had always worshipped Alice in Wonderland. I just loved the books and loved Alice. And I'd always identified with Alice because I had long blonde hair and I used to wear a headband and always blue dresses, pinafores. And as it turned out, when I was a senior in high school, I played Alice in Wonderland in the school play. Um, So I, I was just ecstatic and all of my friends were going to go to the matinee on Sunday afternoon to see the premiere of Alice in Wonderland. And um, my parents made us go to Sunday school and I hated Sunday school and I didn't believe a word of it. And I just thought it was stupid and um, boring and I didn't want to go. And I always complained every Sunday and my parents said, you have to go. And I, and they didn't go to church. See, they would drop us off at Sunday (laughs) and then come back and sleep for an hour or two and then go back. So it was a bit out. of a hip, hypocritical I deal. This was, I didn't even know the word hypocrite then, but <laughs> I just thought this was just not fair. Yeah. And they said, well, it's important for you to learn and to understand and all this. And so once that Sunday of Alice in Wonderland, I finally took my stand 
I was six, I think. And I said, I'm not going to Sunday school. And daddy said, why not? I said, well, I have a stomachache. And he said, I don't believe you have a stomachache. I said, I'm telling you, I have a stomachache and I can't go. So he looked at me and he said, okay, you have a stomachache. If you get too sick to go to Sunday school, then you're too sick to go to Alice in Wonderland. And I said, well, I couldn't then back down and say, I don't have a stomachache. So I said, well, I really do have a stomachache. And besides, I didn't believe for a minute that he would stop me from going to see Alice in Wonderland because he knew that it was the highlight of my year. And so when it came time to go, I didn't go to Sunday school. And um, I, daddy stood his ground and I went to mother and said, you know, you can't, you can't do this. And mother appealed uh, on my behalf and he absolutely wouldn't hear of it. And I didn't get to go. And I was absolutely devastated. Yeah. And it left a searing memory on me because, and it was very conflicting memory because I knew that I had lied and that was wrong and I shouldn't have lied. But I also knew that I didn't want to have to go study something that I didn't believe. At that point, I guess I was an atheist, a junior atheist, but I didn't know that word either. Um, But I also thought that my parents were hypocrites. I learned a lot of words after that experience. Yeah. But it was very conflicting in my mind that I would, you know, that I would have to lie to get out of something, to go, go to something that I didn't believe in. That just yet, seemed wrong to me. Yet they were sending you someplace they weren't not going. going. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was. It, it started making me think about religion and what it was about and what it was worth. And it, it well, really that's me against religion. It wasn't until I was thirteen that I learned the word atheist. And well, the- that's what you state in the book that you were an atheist. You say since the age of four. Now, what in your life shifted for you to have more faith and to the point to take the faith so far that you started this on-faith blog for the Washington Post? Again, I'm fast-forwarding here, but the reality is you come from this very, very fascinating upbringing of of, uh, people that were practicing voodoo and various strange things, and then you fast-forward you know, to your days at the Washington Post. And something major transitioned in you, and we're going to be speaking about that with some other questions that I have as well. But um, why why were you exploring? You know, you talked about a seeker in the book. You know, a lot of our listeners are, I would consider, seekers, right? Um, well, yeah. I, because I, it just seemed to me that my life, and I write about this in the book that there, even as a child, my life was full of spiritual experiences that I couldn't understand. And a lot of them were psychic. I was psychic and my grandmother, my, my aunt, my mother were all psychics. Um, and, you know, it's been part of my family. So that when you have this psychic and, I, you know, I'm not always psychic, I'm in and out. <laughs> sometimes right. my antenna is way up there and sometimes I don't. I'm not getting anything. But right. so when you have that, you sort of know that there's something there and um, and something that's bigger than we are, something that we don't understand. And um, what I didn't understand about religion, organized religion, was the worship of that something. It wasn't necessarily the belief in it, but it was the worship. And and of that something that was specifically called God or Christ, the Son of God, 
and and the 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 Christ story I thought was very moving and powerful, and I believe that Jesus Christ was a, one of the great prophets. But I could never quite get my head around the fact that he was the Son of God and that he came down and was cru- and I couldn't believe that a good God would allow his own son that much suffering and that, that that there was suffering in the world. And of course, that's the ultimate question about religion when people start questioning religion is you know, why is there suffering in the world? And there's no answer for that. Well, it's beyond our, you know, we can't understand. You know, we'll never understand. So that wasn't good enough for me. And um, uh, so I, I sort of, from the time I was, well, that one six, but then when, by the time I was 13, I learned the word atheist. I became very angry at the idea of religion because I thought that there was so much, evil done in the name of religion and there was and and that that i couldn't believe that you know all of it what christ stood for and i mean if you look at the marches today and the protesters a lot of them are out there protesting peacefully and singing we shall overcome and suddenly they're horses and tear gas and bullets and all of that and you know the the question that a lot of christian ministers and pastors are asking today is where would you be? Where would Jesus be today? And the answer is he would be out on the streets protesting. Um, um, so you know, so what was, you know, on some way I always call myself a Christian with a small C because I believe in the teachings of Christ, but not a Christian in the large C where I'm a worshiper. Um, Right. There's, a, there's a big difference to me in that, and and that. What I, would be the what would be the big T for you? Truth. Um, you well, know, some people big, talk about the little T and the big T, and, and yeah. you're referring to it as the, you know, I I loved your reference to um, what many might call intuition. When you tune in, uh, you're tuned into a higher power. Question is the channel you're tuned in on. You discerning that that's coming from a higher place or that's coming from ego. That becomes the big uh, million-dollar question for people is putting their faith and then taking an action based upon understanding where that voice is coming from. In, in my case, it's, it's um, some people are kinesthetics. You know, depending on how you get it, you get a feeling, you hear it, you know, it, depending on what it is. But my point is, is that, some people can't be very discerning of that. Mm-hmm. So what is the big T for you, the big truth? Well, you know, ultimately in my book, what I say is that, um, you know, there was a study done at Harvard. My husband was part of the study. It's called the Grant Study. And it um, interviewed four classes um, in the 1940s. Um, and Ben, Ben Bradley, my my late husband, was one of the. They, they wanted to interview extraordinary young people because all studies had been done had been done about people who had been traumatized or had some problems or whatever. They wanted to interview people who had sort of basically been brought up with a silver spoon in their mouth and given everything and were really bright and went to Harvard and what their lives would be like in contrast to others. In the Grant study, Jack Kennedy was a member of the Grant study. And um, most of the people in the Grant study are now dead because Ben would be 99 this summer. So most of them are, you know, either dead or not functioning particularly well. 
but they would interview them once a year. And at the end of the, it, the, the guy who was running the grant study put out a book and, and wrote a, a long article about it, which he said, after all of these years, and most of these men have been incredibly successful and they've made money and they've been married and they've been divorced and they've just, and they, they had, you know, but they'd had extraordinary lives. But in the end, there was only one thing that mattered to them, and that was love, full stop, is the way he wrote it. And so for me, the big T is love. And it sounds so trite, and yet it's really hard. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean look, we talk, about- most people that have uh, been around this arena, most of my listeners, you know, there's love and fear, right? Yes. Two big emotions. Yes. Um, much of and what's I, being driven in the streets yeah. is fear. Yes. Uh, Fear-based. Yes. And, and in fear, there's contraction. Right. Right? There, there's not expansion. In love, there's expansion. It's an expansive world. Um, people are compassionate. Um, what, and, I, and I really appreciate the fact that the big T for you is love. Because in the end... As uh, the Dalai Lama says, you're going to be remembered by those who loved, those who loved you, and how much love you gave to the world. In essence, that's kind of a quote, unquote, it's maybe not exact, but I, I agree with that. You know, the amount of compassion you can show for another person, the amount of love you can give is extremely important. Well, and also the big T is... Um, is um, um, what you hope for others. And, you know, it's do unto others as you will have others do unto you. Right. And, I mean, I've always, you know, we all say those things. We say those words. It sounds like a bromide and, and you know, you sort of believe it. But, yeah, but I have tried to live that way, not all my life. I mean, I've sort of, yeah, I've accepted that as, as a as a, a a wise way of living, but I I haven't acted on it all my life until recently. Um, and I think probably my husband's death five and a half years ago has something to do with that. And and he had dementia, so for years before he died, it was very difficult. And I I basically gave up my life and spent at least the last two years. I've never had a nurse taking care of him as a caregiver. Yeah. As a caregiver. And well, the compassion a caregiver has to show is really just love. In other words, you have to give up a lot of what you want for helping somebody else because it doesn't always happen that way. And so I just want to acknowledge you for that because of the amount of time you did that. Um, you also had a son that you had to care for. Um, I had a son who was born with heart defects and severe learning disabilities. Um, right. But he's turned out to be an amazing young man. Yes, amazing (laughs) guy uh, uh, who is down on the farm with me and his beautiful wife and his adorable seven-year-old stepdaughter. He's written books. He works for the uh, Center for Disability Learning. Uh, He's made films. I mean, his name is Quinn Bradley, and he's going to, right now, is going to be until November doing Get Out the Boat for People with Learning Disabilities. Well, I, I, I helped a school raise money called Terry for kids with Down syndrome and yeah. uh, special needs. And um, actually, I'm trying to think of the gentleman from Washington whose son, he was on CBS 
Sunday morning, CBS 60 Minutes as well. And I invited him to come out and speak to these families. And uh-huh. it was fascinating. I'm drawing a blank on it right now, uh, his name. But if I said his name, you would know who he was. He, he put it in the closet for a long time. Uh, he was an advisor to... Um, uh, not Nixon. He was an advisor to Ronald Reagan and, and many of them. So, he, But he stuck it in the closet because he lived in a society where it wasn't cool to do and then finally brought it out. And the, ki- the young man had severe autism. Um, so it was a fascinating story. Well, I, you know, I told Quinn in the very beginning, I said, you know, you are really lucky because you have something that no one else has, which is what very few people have, which is learning disabilities. And so a lot of people struggle with what they want to do with their lives, but you're not going to have to struggle because you know what you're going to do with your life, which is to help other people have learning disabilities. And that's going to give your life true meaning. I was just reading about Viktor Frankl's book, which is sort of my Bible man search for meaning, which he wrote right after he um, got out of the concentration camps and, can't take away someone's dignity, can you? So, right. But he, he always talked about having a, a sense of meaning and purpose. And right. for Quinn, that's been his lifelong purpose and meaning is to help other people. And so he feels really very fulfilled, and he's still got learning disabilities, um, but he sees them as a plus. And I always said to him, you know, you should not be ashamed. I mean, you, you need to speak out because if you don't speak out, if you hide it, then it'll look like there's something wrong with you. Right. And um, I remember once, and he had a speech defect. He couldn't speak clearly until he was about five. And we went to the drugstore, and he wanted something, a candy or something. And he asked the, the druggist, and the druggist couldn't understand a word he said. And he said, I'm, I'm sorry. And Quinn repeated it another time. And the guy said, I'm, I'm sorry. Quinn repeated it a third time. And the guy was just anguished because he knew that he had a speech defect. And Quinn looked at me and he said, Mom, what's his problem? (laughs) And I thought, I've achieved, I've achieved. (laughs) I work around developmentally disabled kids for two years to help them raise money to build a new facility. And I became intimately involved with many of the kids, you know. And the thing that they don't have is we were speaking about love. Their love is always there. It just comes out, um, especially the Down syndrome kids. They're just, they yeah, very, come up very and run. Yeah. Just incredibly affectionate. Every morning I would be greeted with these Down syndrome kids with hugs. And it made my day. Yeah. Now, switching gears a bit, you know, your father was known as Buffalo Bill Quinn. Now, I don't uh, know exactly why Buffalo Bill. And was a three-star general, as you said, and directed the Strategic Services Unit. Um, he was decorated with so many medals of honor, as I read in Wikipedia, and he died at 92. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the influences your father had on you uh, that maybe aren't the religious ones um, that to this day you're super appreciative of what he actually taught you? Well, my father was a warrior, and um A lot of my friends will say that, um, but I'm a warrior's daughter. And um, and, and that's true because um, I've always felt like fighting for the things that I care about or that I believe in. And um, when when I was working full-time for the Washington Post, where I've been now this month for 51 years, um, 
I always tried to do stories that would illuminate. Um, I did a lot of profiles about people and who they were. And some, most of the time they were flattering profiles, but sometimes they weren't. If I was interviewing somebody who I thought was not a good person, it, it would come out in the interview because I would simply quote them. But a lot of those interviews got attention. Um, but I, but, but sort of fighting for the things that you believe in, because my father was a huge patriot and he believed in this country and, and the goodness of this country. Um, because he went to West Point, I mean, honor, integrity, honesty, all of those things were very important to him and always sort of drilled into us as children. Um, but I have to say for my mother, who was, everyone loved my mother. Everyone loved her. And I mean, they loved my father too, because he was Irish and great, very gregarious and told wonderful stories. But my mother was just unbelievably kind and loving and caring. She was the kind of person who, if there was somebody standing alone at a cocktail party, and she was a great party girl, would go over and try to pull them into the group and make sure that they weren't left out. You know, she was, and so from her, I learned about love, because, and I learned about unconditional love, which is what she gave me. I mean, my mother and I never, until she died, I never had um, a harsh word between the two of us, which sounds unbelievable, but she was my best friend. Um, and again, I mean, it was all about, you know, it was all about a, a, an ethical life, not a boring life because they loved parties and they had lots of friends and all of that, but it was, they entertained constantly. And um, I, when I wrote a book about the party, I wrote that my, from my parents, I had learned that entertaining is, is really about generosity of spirit. It's about making people welcome people into your home and making them feel comfortable and happy. And nothing pleases me more when I've had people for dinner or large parties or something. I want people to sort of walk out of my house feeling just sort of levitated and feeling embraced and feeling somehow that they they have been a star in some way. That they how have about something how about transformed by the magic? You know, that you create, (laughs) you know, I think that is true. Let me just say, I want to get back to the hex thing a little bit, because we were talking about my, my changes and, and the things that uh, as I went along the way, sometime in my early thirties, I put hexes on three different people and um, who had really hurt me badly or hurt somebody I know I loved badly. And um, each time I did it, something really terrible happened to them. Um, one person committed suicide, and I, I, I didn't put I didn't put hexes on them to die. I just wished them the same kind of pain they had called caused me. One of them committed suicide. One of them got cancer and lost his job and you know his position in life. And then the third person died. And my brother called me up and. He, you know, from Chicago, where he was this PhD in religion, um, and he said, you know, you got to, you got to cut this out because this is really, you know, this is not, this is, this is serious stuff that you're trying, to, you're doing, and it just, you can't do this anymore. And I said, well, I don't really believe it anyway. He said, well, you should try to believe it since look what's happened the last three times. And I said, 
I didn't know whether I believed it or not. I just thought it just seemed really silly on some level, but on the other level, I was really scared about it. And, um, and I felt terrible about what had happened to these people because I had never wished anything as bad as that on anybody. And so after that, I never did put a hex on anybody again. And, um, you know, when you said that it, it, it got a lot of people upset that I had written about these hexes. When I would sit in groups of people or, you know, giving in lectures or interviews and, and people would raise their hand and they would get really angry at me and say, how could you put hexes on? Look what you did to these people. And I say, well, do you believe it? Do you really believe that, that that's what happened, that I put a hex on and they died? And I'd say, well, no, <laughs> I don't believe it. And I said, well, then if you believe it, if you don't believe it, why are you upset? Well, (laughs) so I think part of people sort of believe, you know, it's like, I don't know. I think it's their, I think it's people's mental construct of what it means. It doesn't mean that it's, that it's real. Um, Like you said, you didn't believe it. Um, In your case, something happened, but does that mean you did it? Yeah. No, because you didn't believe you did it. So, so I, I think that one, yeah, I, I'd say put it to bed because it's something. That well, I, I did. I mean, yeah, I did. you, you but have. I stopped doing it, and one of the, you know, one of the things that was playing in my head was, um, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And I sort of thought, I'm not living by those words because I wouldn't want anybody to put a hex on me. And even if I didn't believe it, so I'm not ever going to do it again. Now, I cannot tell you how many people, many, many, many of my friends um, who don't believe it have begged me to put a hex on Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's probably plenty of people out there, especially when he did the photo op with the Bible the other day and couldn't, yeah, that was, couldn't, you know, couldn't get it in the right direction. It was like, know, so was like, where do I put this thing? Yeah. What, do I, what is this? You know, what, <laughs> exactly. What is this? Now, I, so anyway, I, but so I started rethinking my whole religious and spiritual. This is long before I started the religion website. And then, um, but I was, but, but I was still always, always curious about religion because what I didn't understand was the difference between the big C and the little C, mm-hmm. being a good person or a small C Christian or being a, you know, practicing Christian and organized religion. Always, I felt, you know, there's so many things wrong with organized religion, and we can see that in the Catholic Church and the sexual abuse and all that kind of thing. Um, but I, so I, I, I was always sort of curious about it, and I had some very close friends who were deeply religious and who, you know, who were just um, appalled that I was, and, and been, in fact, my husband was appalled that I was an atheist, and my father never got over it on his deathbed. The last thing he said to me when he grabbed my hand was, Sally, please don't be an atheist. Those are the last words he said to me. And, and you know, it was so upsetting to him. Um, and well, when, when I, had, you're... I had lunch with my friend John Meacham. You know who John Meacham is, a religion scholar and his famous historian. And he basically talked me out of it in a three-hour lunch in a New York um, restaurant and just said, you're not an atheist. I said, well, yes, I am. He said, no, you're not. And the reason you're not is because you're not a negative person. 
And atheism is negative. It's, it's a, you know, you don't believe in anything. And you say right. the other thing is, you don't know anything about religion. So if you're going to be an atheist, you're going to have to study religion and then decide that you don't believe it. And he gave me a reading list. And I started reading about religion, and I got more and more interested because I think John is one of the smartest people I know. And so, what, so for our listeners, um, you know, you mentioned it in the book. You know, you referenced many books that influenced it, and part of the all of this occurred as a result. I shouldn't say all of it, but you know, your husband got dementia. You kind of put the dots together. Everything started coming together. Then that was two thousand and three. His behavior changed you knew something had to change with you, with inside of you. You started seeking. I'm going to call it seeking. That's the best way I can refer to it. And I think our listeners would really like to know, um, Thomas More has been on the show several times. Uh, wonderful man. I mean, fabulous, and, and yeah. the book, fabulous guy. Uh, I could interview him all day long. He's I know, I know. so deep and so interesting. But in one of the books that you talked about was A Religion of One's Own, which was, was his book. What other books would you uh, advise our listeners that might be of value for them as we kind of wrap up our interview here? Well, you know, one of the books that had a huge influence on me was A Variety of Religious Experiences, Williams James. And I think that was one of the most important books I ever read because it's and it's in the same vein as original religion of one's own because it's basically a variety of religious experiences and I, I, what what I care about the most is that um, I think we're all spiritual beings and um, but we each have a different way of expressing it and we just and we have different beliefs and different ways of coming at it. And so what I what what angers me and upsets me the most is people who will say, I'm right, you know, my way or the highway, my religion is the only religion. And I think that that is so limiting in so many different ways, uh, because, you know, I one of the things I say is I am I've never been an agnostic because I don't even know what that means. Agnostic means I don't know. Right. And right. So I don't think. I think we're we're all agnostics because nobody really knows. The Pope is an agnostic. He doesn't know any more than I do. He might right. believe more or something that different from what I believe. But but the fact is that we we all believe in whatever we believe. And I think you can take a, you know a thousand people sitting in a church praying, and they're all praying to something different. They're not praying to the same God or goddess or the universe or whatever else, they all have their own idea of what faith and spirituality and religion is. So for me, that is the most important thing. And in the last three months, um, I said I had changed a lot. In the last three months, um, you know, I've lived a very active life in Washington. I'm social. I, I give, entertain a lot. I go out a lot. I'm very involved in what's going on in politics and, and, um, and I've been down here for almost four months in the country. And I haven't gone out once. I haven't even left the property. And I haven't, you know, obviously gone to a party. I haven't seen any friends. I haven't done anything. And it has been one of the most remarkably peaceful and spiritual times I've ever had in my life. And I, I think as long as allowed people... me to really put things in perspective and look at the things about my life that I was doing that really didn't matter to me anymore because we're so much 
things that I just took for granted as this is how I live and this is what I do and this is what I believe. I have a labyrinth here in the country and I, I walk it every day. Yeah. I meditate for a half an hour, an hour uh, in the center of the labyrinth. And um, I, just, I just come away feeling extremely peaceful and content living this life, which, uh, and my friends can't believe it. One of my friends called the other one the other day and said, I think we've lost her. <laughs> yeah. Well, you <laughs> yeah. know, I think for people, Sally I think Pally, Sally, for people that are doing beings, it's very difficult. You live your life in a, in a more fast paced world. And then to go to the country, which is where you're going to find this harmony, which is where you're going to find this balance in your life and be able to do the things you need. You're, you're becoming more of who you want to become. So you're becoming yeah. being, you yeah. are becoming, in other words, you're evolving, you're, in, you're becoming enlightened. And you stated, and this is my last question, we'll wrap it up, that the label of seeker or searcher doesn't work for you. You mentioned that all seeing meaning in life and your epiphany was that when you uh, realized that you were not an atheist and believing in magic is uh, legitimate as any religion of faith, which was said. So if you were to leave with our listeners a little bit of your magic, what would you tell them about believing in magic or finding magic? You know, I think um, magic com- magic is something that comes to you when you think about other people instead of yourself. And I, I know that sounds sort of um, pompous in a way, but um, when I'm concentrating on myself or my own problems, and here I am, you know, here I am at my farm in the country away from all of this, and that is an incredibly privileged and elitist situation. Most people are not in my situation. I, I don't lack for food, and I don't lack for a job, and I'm not, you know, I'm not in any distress. And so it's very easy for me to say, you know, I've rethought myself and I've, you know, rethought my life and all that. And that's very easy when you're not hungry. Um, But I I do think that the least happy people I know are the people who are most self-absorbed and whose egos are huge. And I don't think I've ever really had a large ego, Um, but what makes me happiest and where I find the most magic is when I can do things for other people and make other people feel good or feel happy. And I find I'm on the phone a lot of times with my friends who are suffering or who are having problems. And and I'm talking about life and death problems and divorce and, and happy just being with my seven year old step granddaughter and teaching her things about life and being with my son. And, but, um, but doing things for other people, and, and I don't just mean charity. I mean, I work with the my son's disability, the Natural Center for Learning Disabilities. Right. Um, but I always feel better, um, and, I, and I've always taught Quinn this, too. It just it makes your heart swell when you can do something good for somebody, and it, that makes them happy. Um, well, it's about giving, but it's also about making yeah. a contribution where you and can so, make a I mean, contribution. In some way, you know, in some way, it's selfish for me. Um, right. Like I like to give presents and do things for people, and I don't expect anything back because it makes me feel good when I do something for people. Um, right. But I, I just, you know, that's where I that's where the magic comes, and um, and also from loving, um, loving 
as many people as you can, having as many friends as you can. You know, one somebody once said, you know, it takes it, it. You know, you have to be a friend. You have to. I think what it is, and and in order to have a friend, you have to be one. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So I reach out to people, and um, you know, and so I get a lot back from that, and. Um, I think that's the magic is love and relationships and doing things for other people. Well, I'll just tell my listeners, it's called Finding Magic. We've been on with Sally Quinn. Um, you definitely should go pick up the book because anybody who is, I'm going to say, speaking uh, speaking from experience, uh, I went back later in life, Sally, and got a degree in spiritual psychology. And the reality is, is that if you are seeking to kind of find yourself, which many people are, um, this book gives you an open window to looking at some things in somebody's life with very uniquely looking at them. Um, there's lots of books out there, but this is a great memoir on top of it of Sally. So I appreciate you not only writing the book, but having an opportunity for my listeners to hear in your own words the way you've uh, kind of your trajectory, your path, your life path, and uh, knowing that you were born July 1st and I'm born July 3rd. Oh, really? Uh, the reality is uh, <laughs> two, two Cancerians, yeah. we understand what it's like to entertain and want to actually please people uh, because that's... Frank, let me just say one, one quick thing, which is that when my husband was, when, when it became clear that he was going to, having dementia and was going to die, the last two years of his life, he was needed constant caretaking. Those were the two happiest years of my marriage and the happiest years of my life because I was with him all the time, every day, and I was taking care of him and I was making him happy. And he kept saying to me, you're taking such great care of me and I love you so much. And it was just an extraordinary time. I just felt, I felt so just exhilarated by the idea that I could do this for him and, and please him and make him happy in every way. And that was magic for me. Um, that was one of the most magical times of my life. Well, I think for our listeners, the best way to do is go find their own magic. Whatever that might be, uh, everybody's got their way to find it in their life. And the, and the most important thing is, if you haven't found it, keep looking. Because it is there and you will find it. Um, Sally, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth with an opportunity to talk to you about your book, Finding Magic. Um, we'll put uh, links to Amazon for the, all the listeners to purchase the book. And um, again, blessings to you. I'm glad you found that magic in life, which is love. Um, love and blessings to you. Thank you.